You may be seated. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Morning. morning. Great to be here with you. Uh, welcome to our online community as well. We love you and uh, hope that you're doing well. Um, I'm Jamie, by the way. If you don't know me, I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and I get to unpack the scriptures for us uh, today, which I'm looking forward to doing. Uh, before I do that, though, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who gave uh, to the Cross campaign. Uh, I want to just let you know that we have raised everything we need for that, which is incredible. Uh, that was quick. So uh, we, we assume then, we uh, uh, assume from that that you are behind it. Uh, so that's good. So we are really, really looking forward to getting the work done this summer. And then around mid-October, it'll be after Thanksgiving, we're going to have our 75th anniversary sort of celebrations. We've got some things we'll be talking to you about nearer the time. And as part of that, we will be all kind of going out into the parking lot when it gets dark and lighting that thing up for... Uh, for good, hopefully, so um, uh, it'll become part of the Abbotsford City skyline again, and we're excited about that. So thank you so much for uh, participating with us in that. Uh, since the beginning of this year, we have been uh, largely in the book of Mark. We've been working our way through the sort of narrative arc of the gospel uh, of Mark. And now we did take a recent break. Uh, I sort of stepped out of the pulpit a little bit in May as I was teaching a seminar. Um, and so we went in a little bit of a direct, different direction for that month. We went into the Old Testament book of Jonah, if you recall. And then last Sunday, we had a great um, community care Sunday with our youth and young adults. And so today we're back into Mark, and the goal is uh, to finish it by uh, sort of the first week of July. So uh, that's what we're doing for the next four weeks. We're going to finish up uh, this uh, gospel. And so uh, what we've been doing is we have been following the story of Jesus Christ as recounted by Mark, John Mark from the, from the Bible, using the sermons, sayings, uh, and words of the Apostle Peter. Uh, so it's largely the things that Peter said, the things Peter taught, the things Peter preached, the things that he shared, uh, recounted by Mark and recorded by Mark, and then written down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and presented to us as the Gospel of Mark. And, and if you remember, um, the Gospel of Mark starts really, really sort of abruptly. Uh, it doesn't have the Matthew and Luke kind of infancy narratives that we, we kind of look at at Christmas time, but it just jumps right in, which is in keeping with Peter. It's a very action-oriented uh, gospel. It doesn't have the big teaching segments that you get in uh, particularly Matthew. And so it starts with the ministry of John the Baptist, who is out in the wilderness declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and be baptized. Prepare the way, because the one is coming who's going to change everything. And in that early story in chapter 1, Jesus shows up on the scene and is baptized by John. And he's baptized by John not because he needs to repent, but because what he's actually doing is actually stepping into the human story. He's becoming sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he took up the story of humanity in himself and particularly the story of Israel and was baptized in order to identify with humanity. And the wonderful part of the end of that story is when Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens open, and there's this wonderful, beautiful affirmation of the Father that says, this is my son. He's the beloved. Listen to him. It's a beautiful story. 
And after that incredible start, which happened sort of down in the south, outside of the city of Jerusalem in the Jordan River, Jesus then heads north to the region of Galilee. And he spends uh, a lot of time there. It's called Jesus Galilean Ministry. And actually, for the first seven chapters of the Gospel of Mark, he's there in the towns and villages around Galilee. And, And we read stories of what he did in Galilee. He did things like call the disciples, and he healed sick people. And he drove out demons from demon-possessed people. There's that great story where he travels across the sea to the Decapolis on the other side, and he meets Legion there. And there's this incredible story of Legion's deliverance. Um, He calms the storm on the sea. He goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and gets rejected by his hometown. He he faces opposition as he preaches in the synagogues from some uh, Jewish leaders that have been dispatched from Jerusalem to go and find out what on earth is going on up there in Galilee. The crowds are going crazy. So these are all the things that are happening in the first part of of Mark's gospel. When we reach the halfway point, chapter 8, is a really interesting passage. You may recall me preaching it uh, a, a number of weeks ago. And you get this really kind of weird and interesting two-stage healing of the blind man, which is odd because you think, so did Jesus not get it right the first time? Why did it take two times to heal him? And then the disciples head right to the very far north of Israel, about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get and still be in Israel, a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was on the, uh, the slopes of Mount Hermon. And there we get this declaration of Peter that you are the Messiah, the Christ. And you have these two seemingly unrelated stories that I argued in my sermon were actually profoundly related stories. Because just like the man in the story, the blind man was beginning gradually to gain his sight, so the disciples were beginning to gradually understand and get a picture of who Jesus was. And of course, post-death and resurrection, they all have a very clear picture of who Jesus uh, was and is. Um, And uh, then uh, when we get to, so at chapter 8 then, uh, it's actually the middle of the gospel, but it's also kind of like a hinge point. Uh, A shift happens. We have, we've had up to this point the the kind of veiled Messiah, and now we have the unveiled Messiah. We have the hidden Messiah who was like, don't tell anyone who I am, and now we begin to see who Jesus is. And from this point, after that declaration, ministry in Galilee is over, and Jesus begins the long journey south to Jerusalem and his destiny. And on that road, you get certain stories, um, such as the transfiguration in chapter 9, and there's healings and miracles and different things that happen as he's on the journey, but he's, he's moving towards his destiny in Jerusalem. And so we've reached chapter 10 today. Um, we're going to do 10, and we'll be looking at 12 and 13. Uh, we won't be looking at 11, because that was the Palm Sunday story, which we kind of jumped ahead to on Palm Sunday, and 14 and 15 are the, the, the death of Jesus, which we looked at and read on Good Friday, and chapter 16, of course, is the resurrection. So we've done those bits. We're sort of filling in uh, the gaps here. So if you have your Bible, open to chapter 10 of Mark, and we're going to read 17 to 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to gain or inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. But you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He said, Teacher, I've kept all of those from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, 
you lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astounded, and they said to one another, then, then who on earth can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, well, for mortals, it's impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Hallelujah. Peter began to say to him, look, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields and pers with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. God's word to us today. Amen. Pretty meaty, hey? Lots in there. It's actually a really fascinating interaction that Jesus has with this uh, rich, young uh, ruler. And, and it doesn't say ruler in this one, but in other, uh, other gospels, it says he, that he was a ruler. Uh, this, this young man clearly sees in Jesus something uh, that he's interested in. And he thinks that Jesus might have some answers to the big questions of life. And so he, he goes up to him and he wants to know, are you worth following? And, and what will that mean exactly? What will kind of I have to do? And that's sort of what he's, he's asking here. And Jesus challenges him at the core of his being. And it's actually a really tragic story. Because the man essentially says, oh, that's too much. And he goes away grieving, and we don't hear anything from him again. He goes away grieving because he had many, many possessions. And Jesus uses his opportunity to teach his disciples that this whole kingdom of God thing is actually pretty impossible for you, for all of you. But with God, it's possible. And so we learn about his power and his way and so on. So the man has, has run up to Jesus. I think he's honest. Uh, I think he shows reverence. He actually kneels down before Jesus. He, he's honest. He, has, he shows reverence, and he, he wants to receive eternal life, and he, he seems genuine, and he asks. Uh, years and years ago, um, uh, people who, 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 who lived through the World War, through the Second World War, uh, sort of divided time between before the war and after the war, Right? You'd hear people talk about, well, that was before the war, and then, you know, that's, that's, this is after the war. It was like a dividing moment. And of course it was, because the Second World War was such an all-encompassing event that impacted the, you know, the entire world, pretty much, uh, that, um, that it, was, it was almost like a divided history for the people who lived during uh, that time. It was almost like it divided into two epochs of time, two eras before the war and after the war. I don't know if you've noticed, but we use some of that similar language about the pandemic. We say, yeah, 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 but that was pre-COVID, and this is now. Right? We talk about pre-COVID and now pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. We talk about it in those categories because, again, the pandemic was such a crazy, difficult, hard 
None of us have ever experienced anything like that kind of event in history that it literally seemed to split our current history into two epochs of time again. The world is in two eras, and it's, not, it's very different than it was before. Things have actually changed. And the reason I'm sharing these two examples for you is because for first century Jews, they understood the world and the kingdom a little bit like that. They believed that there was a time that was coming where something was going to happen that meant everything was going to change for them and for the world. The people of Israel had been under foreign nation after foreign nation for generations, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, etc., But a day was coming where they would be liberated and that God was going to come. He was going to punish wicked, the wicked. He was going to reward the righteous. The world was going to enter into a new era where all of the promises of those Israelite prophets was finally going to come to pass. And the nations would flock to Mount Zion and a Davidic king would be on the throne forever and ever. There was going to be this world-shaking event this, that they would talk about in terms of a before and an after The day was coming when you and I read or hear read the story of the rich young ruler, and we hear him say, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We do have a tendency, I think, to read that question or hear that question or understand that question through 21st century Christian lenses, and it's actually not helpful because we actually have to understand what he actually meant. When we hear that, what we think is that he's saying, what do I need to do to make sure I go to heaven when I die? That's not what he was asking. That wouldn't have really made sense to him. It wouldn't have really made sense uh, to the disciples. Uh, Rather, for an Israelite, what they're asking is, when is God going to roll up his sleeves and finally deliver us so Israel can rule again? That's what he's asking. And there's more to it than that. It's a bit of an oversimplification. But it's closer than this idea of who do I need to accept in my heart as my personal savior so that when I die, I can float off to some celestial experience in heaven with the angels. Like that didn't make any sense to the first century. That's not what they were asking. That's not what they would have thought. Eternal life wasn't understood as long, unending spiritual experience, but rather it had more to do with the quality of the life that was going to be when God has reestablished a Zionic kingdom where evil is punished and good is rewarded. That is what they were actually asking. It wasn't until after the death and resurrection of Jesus that anybody would ever think about, all right, so the Messiah was actually God in the end, and so he died in our place, and therefore we need to receive him into our heart in order to gain our salvation, and therefore, yeah, when we die, we'll get to go and be with him. they, They didn't think like that. Only after Jesus did people start thinking like that. So we tend to read then our understanding and our theology into the page of the New Testament, and it's actually not helpful because that's not what he's asking. What he's asking is, is it worth me following you? Or should I become a Pharisee? Or should I go and join the Essenes out in the desert? Or is there some other rabbi that's going to be coming that I should follow him? Like, why should I follow you? Should I follow you? What do, what do I do to make sure that I'm in the right Lane. I'm trying to figure out which road to walk down so that when God does his thing and fulfills his promises and Israel rules a nation again, uh, eternal life was, was this age to come, before the war, after the war, 
kind of thing? How do I make sure I'm in the right group so I'm rightly poised to live successfully when the new age comes? That's what he's asking. So he's coming with an honest question. And Jesus actually humors him a little bit, and he actually, what he's doing in his answer, he's actually drawing the man out. Because I think we, we read, well, keep commandments and I'll be saved? Well, we know that it's by faith in Jesus that we're saved. It's not through keeping laws. We know that. We do know that. And Jesus wasn't saying it was about laws, but he's teasing him out. He's actually answering him in a way he would expect a rabbi to answer him. If you'd asked a Pharisee that question, or an Essene that question, they probably would have answered in two ways. They would have said, well, you need to keep the law. And each group had their own specific understanding of what keeping the law actually meant. And so it was keep the law according to our tradition. And secondly, come and join us, because we've got it right. We're, we're, we now are a true, authentic Israel. We're living out what it means to be true Israel. Everyone else doesn't really get it. Sound familiar? Um, we're the ones who you need to be part of. Come and follow us and live with us, and, and, and God will keep his, his promises to us faithfully. So Jesus actually answers him in a way he expected to be answered. He says, you know the law, buddy. Like, don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other. Keep the commandments. The man says, but I've done all that. I've kept those since I was young. I've been obsessed at keeping this stuff. I've, I've attended church and Sunday school and youth, and I've obeyed my parents, and I've been a good kid. And we could say, well, why is he asking Jesus this then? If he already has done all the stuff, why is he asking Jesus? I think he's asking Jesus because he knows deep down that there's something missing. I think deep down... He knows that there's something missing. I think he's probably asking, you know, which rabbi do I hitch my wagon to to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm in the right place when God does his thing. But I think there's far more going on. I think he knows that law-keeping doesn't really fulfill. I think he's, he realizes there's something missing. The man might know at a heart and soul level that there's something not quite right. It just doesn't fit. There's a yearning, I think, inside of him. And he's got an inkling that this traveling rabbi might just have the answer for him. I don't know about you, church family, but when I read this passage, there's a part of it in verse 21 that I just love. And let me just read a little bit of it to you again. In verse 21, it says this, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Don't you love that part? I just love that part. Jesus doesn't roll his eyes at him, doesn't say he's another law keeper, he's another you know, stupid Israelite. Um, I'm not quite redeemed yet. I'm a work in progress, forgive me. He doesn't sneer at him, he doesn't ignore him, he, he loves him. He loves this man. He doesn't see his failures and his sins and his brokenness and all of those things, first of all. Those aren't the first thing to catch Jesus' attention, but the first thing that catches Jesus' attention is, oh, I love this guy. And he does that for you as well. You know that? When I was teaching a seminar on spiritual formation, there was, a, it was about 25 of us or something like that were together for those three weeks. And, and one of the things I asked that group to do, I said, um, we did a number of exercises each week, and I said, try this exercise. 
imagine that God clears his mind of everything to do with the universe and the world, and just for a moment thinks about you. You're the only thing on God's mind. What do you think comes to mind? And I think here we have the answer, well, love. But it's interesting because I think a lot of us think, well, he's probably angry at me. He's probably ultimately disappointed. He probably sees my sin and my fear. Like, it's so easy to think that. But actually, no. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, says Jesus. So when God looks at you, he loves you. That's what captures his attention about you. And not only is that a wonderful truth and one that we need to continue to hold up uh, before us and talk about and respond to and live from, not only is that a wonderful truth that ought to speak more loudly in our lives than all of the garbage we have a tendency to listen to, how that truth ought to be so identity-shaping. Not only that, but the love Jesus has and feels for this man actually provides us with the context for what he says next. And next he says to him, you know what, buddy? There is actually one thing that you lack. There's one thing you haven't done. Go sell everything. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. And it proves to be too much for this man. He grieves and he walks away. Jesus, as I said, wasn't espousing some kind of work-based salvation. He wasn't saying you can buy salvation with your money. He wasn't saying anything like that. Actually, the key part was the then come and follow me part. Follow me and I'll show you the way to eternal life. You want to know how to inherit eternal life? I'll show you, but you've got to come and follow me. Come and follow me and I'll show you the heart of the Father. That's the important part. But to be able to properly do that, if there's anything idolatrous in your life, you've got to lay that down first. You've got to get rid of that so that you can truly come and follow me in all of that wonderful truth. And so he asks him, what is the one thing that's holding him back? And he, and he presents it to the guy and... and um, it's, it, it, it's too much for him. And we know it's standing in his way. Off he goes. Uh, we don't hear from that man again. Uh, we assume that although there was a genuine desire to engage with Jesus and ask about uh, this eternal life, in the end, the barrier was too much. The barrier was uh, too much for him, and he wanted to hold on uh, to it. See, Jesus wasn't just giving him an impossible task. He wasn't saying, you need to go and perform, and then I'll let you in. He wasn't doing that. He was actually identifying what it was in the man's life that was simply getting in the way of his full commitment to Jesus, and it was motivated by love. And that's why I said this, this thing that he looked at him and loved him, that provides the context for what Jesus said. It was actually love that drove him to ask him to do this difficult thing. I love you that much, and I want you to follow me so much, and I don't want anything between us, so just get rid of what's between us, because I love you so much, and I want you to love me. And he invites him. But it's our call. We get to lay that thing down or we don't. What I find fascinating about this story is that at the beginning, Jesus lists a bunch of commandments, right? From the Old Testament. He doesn't list them all. But he says, you've got to do this and this and this and this and this. One he doesn't mention and the one that actually is the one that the man's breaking is commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. And unfortunately, this man's God was his money. 
Right after this, once the young man has left the scene, Jesus has an opportunity then to sort of reflect on that with his disciples. And he, he says it's so, it's so hard for people to be able to lay down things that have become idolatrous to them. It's actually as hard, uh, hard as, as it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, the biggest animal in Israel to pass through the eye of the needle, which of course is a ridiculous thought. It's an impossible thought. And so the disciples throw their hands in the air and they say, well, who can ever do anything then, Jesus? That's crazy. And Jesus says this wonderful thing. He says, yeah, yeah, it is actually impossible, but not for the Father, not for God. It's not impossible for him. And he's exactly right because it's actually impossible for any one of us to be saved. Every single one of us in this room, did you know it's impossible for you to be saved? Like without Jesus, we are doomed. We have no hope. And a short while later, as the disciples see their rabbi Messiah hanging on a Roman cross, but then three days later raised from the dead, they're going to start to understand how this God can take the impossible and make it possible. Praise the Lord. Amen. The passage we read then just ends with um, another little bit of a, um, a piece, a little bit of a discussion um, about giving things up. And Peter says, but we've given up everything, Jesus, to follow you. We've given up this and this and this. And you get the, dis- you get the sense the disciples are overwhelmed by this whole interaction. They're just like, okay, it's, but we've given up. We don't know what else to do, Jesus. What are we supposed to do? And, and, and he says, we've already laid down a lot. And Jesus offers this great response. He says, you know what? Everybody who's laid anything down, by the way, you're going to be rewarded far more than the thing you ever laid down. You can never outgive God. The thing that you think is so important, one day you're going to think is like, like food that tastes like sand. It's nothing compared to what God is going to do. And he offers this response. He says, in the age to come, there'll actually be uh, rewards. There'll be lavish rewards in the age to come. Do you know that? It'll be lavish rewards in the age to come. But even in this age, he says, if you've left family and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and this and this and this, you will gain also in this age. And I think what he's talking about is the family of God. You're going to gain brothers and sisters and grandparents and and parents in the family of God, the church, as we all exist together as each other's brother and sister. It's a pretty beautiful picture. So I'm going to invite our team to come back up, please. Um, as Matthew mentioned, we, we just did one song up front today. And we're actually going to have an extended time of worship. So our main worship set is actually going to be now. And then I'll come up and do a benediction a little bit later. Um, and the reason we're doing that is because I, I think it would be really good for us to have an opportunity for a bit more of an extended soaking in the presence of God and actually an opportunity for response. Because sometimes you get to the end of the sermon, we do one song and then we're out of here and it's over a little bit quickly. But I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to the Father's love. And specifically, I'm going to ask you to consider this. Is there anything in your life that is holding you back from full commitment to Jesus? Is there anything in the way of your journey deeper into the heart of God? Has God been beckoning you in some way and so far you've been kind of resisting? Are you gripping something so tightly in your hand and God is asking you to open it, to release it? And is that hard because that thing has become perhaps an idol in your life? You need to smash that idol. 
Or is it hard because you're not sure you can trust what will happen if you let it go? Is it an issue of trust? And for some of us, it can be really hard because it may be a negative thing, but we've nurtured it so long it's become familiar. And even the negative thing that hurts us is actually hard to give up sometimes because it's just familiar. And so you may know exactly what that thing is, or you might have no idea. And so we're going to spend some time in worship and uh, sit in the presence of the Father. And I'm going to pray that the Spirit comes in a fresh manner, in a fresh way. And I'm going to invite you to respond in your heart to the Father, to release whatever that thing is, or just to listen and allow the Spirit to identify it in your life and just invite you to respond. And maybe some of you don't have anything to respond to, but you need to know that when Jesus looks at you, he says, I love you. Maybe that's what you need to receive today. And so we're gonna worship together. Um, I'm gonna give you opportunity to, pray, uh, to be prayed for as well. Um, uh, as we lead in, in worship this morning, uh, if you want to take any kind of posture, feel free to do that. If you wanna get up and move around, feel free to do that. Um, there are going to be people who are wearing prayer team lanyards. You're going to be around, available to pray for you. I'll be available to pray for you. We can pray down here. We can pray back there. Whatever you need to do today. Over to you, Matthew.